Thank you all for coming on this evening. Uh, uh, the Studies has given me very strict chairing notes, which may be an indication of their over efficiency or the uh, lowest, low opinion of their capacity. But anyway, I meant to say I am uh, Toby Dodge and I teach international relations in this great building. Um, more importantly, we're lucky to have Professor uh, Yazid Sayak with us from the Carnegie Middle East Centre. Um, he will speak for about 40 minutes or 30 or 40 minutes. And then he's already said that he wants a, a, a kind of engaged and uh, mutual discussion afterwards. Um, if you've managed, unlike me, to work out what Twitter is, I'm informed you can use the hashtag uh, LSC Saeed at, at, Saeed at the, um, to comment on it. More importantly, there are three great reasons why I'm both very excited and honoured to be chairing with you today. Uh, firstly, because he's an old friend and somewhat of a mentor of mine. And so uh, it's great to be uh, uh, kind of facilitating his talk. Secondly, because he's the author of, I think, one of the definitive books on the, on the PLO, uh, The Armed Struggle and the Search for State Palestinian National Movement, uh, published at Cambridge, I do believe, uh, Oxford indeed, which is, which, uh, is a book I've, I've read and deeply informed my thought. And thirdly, uh, the project that he's working on, on Middle Eastern militaries, I first saw him give a talk on this subject when I was a PhD student at SOAS, and I've kind of come back and been um, kind of, uh, tangentially uh, involved in it ever since. And I think it shows Yazid's great perception that way, way before the Arab Spring, he'd identified this, the Middle East military, as one of the great, uh, the great defining issues. And as we now know, uh, the role that the military played in the Egyptian tapestry rare movement, I think, is indicative of uh, Yazid's foresight. So, without further ado, negotiating transitions, Arab armies and politics. Well, thanks, Toby. Thanks to the Middle East Center for the invitation. And as long as you get Toby to chair my future meetings, I'll come again if I get this sort of generous uh, praise. Um, does that work? Yep. Um, so, what I want to do is, um, I mean, I. I'm covering a lot of ground. Um, I've been working on this, as Toby said, for a number of years. And obviously, the events of the last year have forced me to intensify and accelerate some of my thinking. And also, has forced me also, events have forced me to um, undertake new research. I'm writing right now on the Egyptian case and where the Egyptian military go next. Um, so, in a way, I'm dealing with a pretty broad field, very diverse, uh, contradictory trends. And so what I'm going to do tonight is um, give you, throw out a number of main themes or directions uh, which I haven't necessarily synthesized into a single frame of analysis, nor have I resolved contradictions between them, and that probably is not the thing to be trying to do anyway. So what I'm trying to say, in other words, is that um, I'm going to throw out some ideas, uh, I'll argue each one and give some sort of evidence of it or why I think it's interesting or important, and then move on to something that may not fit precisely with the preceding idea. And I'd, I mean, I'm hoping that that will actually allow you much more scope to raise other issues and other things that I haven't touched on that you think are more important or also need addressing. And that will give me an opportunity, in fact, to help articulate my own thinking. Um, now, the first thing to emphasize, as Toby just started doing there, was um, the role played by various armies in Arab uprisings over the last year. I mean, what was so striking about the Tunisian case and then the Egyptian case is the midwife role played by the national armed forces in 
at a certain moment easing out the president from office, whether they did this more or less on their own initiative, as in the Tunisian case, um, when this became the only option in the Egyptian case, nonetheless, in both instances, the armed forces were the critical element in enabling that transition. Um, and whether in Libya, Yemen, or Syria, which is ongoing, clearly the army's position and role has also been critically important. In Libya, the fact that the army fragmented in effect, there were those units that kept fighting for the regime, units that defected immediately and fought against it, and many others that did nothing much, and uh, that were paralyzed or neutralized. But that in itself meant that the regime could not count on the totality of its armed force. Of course, this is something it had been, um, it, in a way, it was, it was falling into the pit. It had dug itself from the 1990s when it marginalized the army. Uh, but nonetheless, this is significant. It also meant that the rebels uh, equally could um, rely at least on the passivity of large parts of the army or in the active support of maybe rather smaller parts of the army. And that's pretty important when you're fighting authoritarian regime and, and things get violent. Um, Yemen, the army initially remained unified but stated it wouldn't fire on the demonstrators without, however, moving against the president. Uh, over time, it started to fragment um, and until recent months wasn't really engaged in uh, sustained <coughs> violence. In other words, the army became paralyzed and that was again critical to President Ali Abdullah Saleh's inability to decide the issue, either in the streets of Sana'a or other main cities or elsewhere. And of course, in the Syrian case, as we see now, that despite a growing stream of defections from the army, the army as a whole remains more or less united. Uh, the key units, which are very strong, the best trained, the best equipped, do appear to be loyal. They've undertaken the brunt of the repression over the past nine months or so. And even the bulk of the army that we assume would defect to the other side if it were given a chance, um, besides being concentrated in weaker units or in the sort of in infantry, etc., not in armor or artillery, um, much of it is being kept to barracks and therefore kept out of the fight. Whatever the, the, the precise uh, factors, the result is that in the Syrian case, the army has not tipped the balance the other way. And my feeling is that down the line, if and when the regime comes to a point of collapse, which I think it will do under the present sort of trend of sanctions and, and so on, um, the, tipping balance, the tipping point will come not so much because the army has tipped the balance, but rather because all sorts of other things are happening, maybe the middle class defects, maybe some of the bigger cities start to show, to escape, uh, to defy government control, and the army then follows as brigades or battalions start to think, okay, we can now safely defect, and they start to do so. So it might be actually the other way around. Um, what has determined the, the response of the National Armed Forces in each instance to events, to unfolding events in each of these cases and others, um, is the manner and degree of the institutionalization of these armed forces into authoritarian regimes. In other words, how has that relationship been managed, structured, and maintained over <coughs> decades of authorita authoritarian construction? Alfred Stepan, who's worked on Latin America, um, I think is pertinent here because of his, in particular, his distinction between the army in relation to the state, i.e. as formal institutions exercising constitutional powers and obligations, 
versus the army as part of a political regime in which more informal, multifaceted, multi-level relationships operate at different levels between regime, the regime, or parts of the regime, and the army, or parts of the army, and other societal actors. And we have both instances, I think, in the Arab uh, region. Uh, broadly speaking, before I go into any of that, the institutionalization of this relationship in the Arab case of, of, of authoritarian regimes can be seen, I think, in three main forms, or through three main prisms. One is the embedding of armies in power structures and in ruling elites, how they've intermarried or intermarried, uh, intermarried or intermeshed or gone into business together or whatever else, as the case may be. Second, the manner in which the army has interrelated with the rest of the coercive apparatus of state, the internal security agencies, intelligence, police, etc. Because every state everywhere in the world, of course, doesn't just have armed forces. It has massive, extensive, proliferated uh, internal security services of ver many various types, so from customs officers to border guard. In other words, mostly men who carry guns uh, that are uh, legitimated by the state. Um, so it's important to understand the nature of these authoritarian regimes and the manner in which armed forces and internal security apparatus uh, related within the broader structure of an authoritarian state. Third is, and this is my particular, one particular area of my interest, is the manner in which uh, the armed forces, along with, I think, a large part of the internal security apparatus, has functioned as a social welfare system for core social constituencies that uh, underpin or support incumbent authoritarians. So um, we, we tend to think of armies and policemen and so on in particular ways. Uh, what we have across the Arab region is very large armies and very large internal security apparatuses, <coughs> massive, maybe up to two million in the case of Egypt, for instance, if you count all categories of informers and police and central security forces and border guards and custom guards, coast guards, etc., plus the armed forces, plus the reserves and the central security forces and so on. I think I mentioned them, but anyway. Um, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's like approximately one-fortieth of the entire population. And if you add their dependents, besides the civilian bureaucrats who number maybe five million, something like that as well, you're talking about a massive part of the population who's, who are dependent on state employment for a critical part of their job security and in income and so on, and then for pensions. And you can do, you know, you can ex uh, conduct the same mathematical arithmetic, arithmetical exercise in Jordan or Syria or Iraq again, or <coughs> any, pretty much anywhere else. Um, and, and I think this is critical to understanding what these armies want, how they function, what they might do next. Now, having said that, I'm not going to go into those three main headings, but rather take a somewhat different tag. Um, first, I want to point out what may seem tremendously obvious, but which I think we tend to underestimate um, in analysis and in thinking about the future. Um, the construction of authoritarian systems has taken place over decades. And most people alive today in Syria or Iran or wherever, Egypt, Algeria, etc., have lived with only this system. So what I'm saying here is that authoritarianism is not just a nasty president, an autocrat with a few buddies and cronies 
who tend to be very self-serving and you know nasty or whatever. Uh, nor is it that they have at their command men with guns. But it's that the entirety of society, of the economy, of the administration, and of culture have adapted over these decades to operating, functioning, surviving within this type of relationship. So we're no longer simply talking about creaming off a president like Hasni Mubarak or Zain Abidin bin Ali, nor of a top clique, nor even, as in Iraq, the top two or three levels of the civil servants because they're all Baathists. Even that didn't necessarily change fundamentally relationships within the country, socially, economically, politically, administratively, etc. And this must have enormous implications for our understanding of what's happened and what is un ongoing and where it goes next. In other words, the regime, old regimes didn't simply disappear. Uh, at best, there's a struggle over the nature of the state and the system in Egypt, even in Tunisia, where we've had a more positive process overall. Um, but just what this means for individual people, for families, for households, for businessmen, for clerics, for whatever, I mean, there's, there's anyone, for ev all of us, in other words, every member of a population is affected by this process. And whether people respond by resisting or by seeing and seizing opportunities is, is going to vary enormously from person to person, sector to sector, class to class, country to country. And that actually is my second point, that we are in all these countries not in anymore in the status quo or what may look like a status quo, a new status quo, in fact, I think is very dynamic. Everything is in transition or is about to move into real transition. What do I mean by this? Why do I bring this in here? Well, this means that your average officer, there's no average officer, let's say junior officer, mid-rank, senior officer, retired officer, conscript, soldier in Egypt, for instance, or in Tunisia or elsewhere, is already thinking, or maybe about to start thinking, about how to adapt and survive within the new system. If, for instance, by being a member, a senior member of the officer corps, this gave you privileged access to those in power or to business opportunities or to illegal economic activities, let's say the Syrian army, for instance, and you know, cross-border trade over <coughs> 35 years with Lebanon or with Jordan or with Iraq or Turkey, um, then what does all this represent for you? Is it a threat? probably for a lot of people, but is it only a threat? Well, it may also be that people who are in these positions of uh, great power and networked and who know how the system works are maybe also the people who are most likely to reappear and reinvent themselves in the coming system, which is what happened in East Europe after the fall of the Iron Wall. Um, it was often the, 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 you know, the Communist Party apparatchiks and cadres and state-owned uh, economic enterprise managers who reappeared as the new capitalists, the new, new Democrats, and the new prime ministers, precisely because they knew how to operate in these systems, and they knew how to adapt, and they had the networks. So I just want to emphasize this because it's too easy to fall into assumptions that are unilinear about any one case, and to say, well, this is the nature of the Egyptian military or the Saudi military or whatever, and under these circumstances, it's most likely to go in this direction or that, which may be very true, broadly speaking, 
but it, we may be missing certain things out, and, and I think there's, there is a lot to see when we look at particular cases, and I can come back to that if you like. I think Egypt is a great case of what I'm saying here. Now, so there are some questions to pose. The biggest one, since I'm talking about negotiating transition, uh, in a way what I'm saying is, can we move to a situation where the relationship between armies and the state as the representative of the people or the nation or of a particular order, political social order, can that relationship be reshaped, renegotiated in a way that promotes what we think of as professionalization, i.e., that the armed forces regard themselves as operating within a constitutionally defined mandate under a legitimately constructed political authority that is presumably civilian, preferably democratically elected or chosen, and where factional, sectoral, communal, ethno-national, sectarian, tribal, regional, etc., loyalties and, and affiliations are play no role ultimately, or at least play less and less role, in determining what the armed forces do, they do it for, how they do it, uh, who they recruit, who they allow up the ladder to the senior command levels, etc. Um, how to build professional armies of this sort that obey civilian authority, that don't enjoy uh, significant exceptions, immunities, exclusions, call them what you will, privileges, whether in relation to criminal behavior, uh, economic criminal behavior, human rights abuses, uh, the exception of uh, you know, placing military people before civilian courts, uh, the trial of civilians in front of military courts, uh, the list goes on. Um, how does one do this? Can we transcend cleavages within society in order to create a Libyan army that belongs to all of Libya, or a Syrian army that belongs to all of Syria, or an Iraqi army that belongs to all of Iraq right now, that's not what we have, clearly. Um, another way of putting this more specifically, because the nation after all is such a big, messy concept, and it means whatever the dominant community usually wants it to mean. Um, can we establish a notion of the state, and of how power is acquired and generated and transferred and handed over and so on, that has wide legitimacy, um, in which basically, so, so what I'm really saying is that by looking at the armed forces and their relationship to state power, to politics, we're actually investigating ongoing debates about the nature of the state and where the state is going in the Middle East. So when the Egyptians fight over whether the army should have residual sovereign authorities in the future, which allow it, for instance, to veto a declaration of war by the president in one extreme, or to retain exclusive control over its defense budget, to take a more practical and direct example. Um, this is not just an argument about the nature of the army. This is an argument about the nature of the Egyptian state and about politics in Egypt. For instance, one immediate issue, the moment you get into that debate, almost immediately you start discussing whether therefore this should be a presidential or par parliamentary system. Precisely because one of the ways in which the army might escape what is evidently going to be a strong parliament because it's got two main players and a third, at least uh, liberal party, it's got the you know, Muslim Brotherhood and the Noor party holding what, nearly 70% of the seats, um, say two thirds. 
Um, and then free Egypt liberals and one or two others coming third and fourth. Now, in terms of parliament, that's a strong parliament. I mean, you've got a few really big parties. Um, now, the army clearly is, right now, is certainly not comfortable with having a strong parliament and therefore will seek and is seeking and has sought to diminish parliamentary power and to maintain the presidential nature of the Egyptian political system, precisely because it hopes as a fallback <coughs> to acquire a, a, a pliant new president who will be under its influence and can therefore continue to use his presidential powers to protect what the army sees as its core interests or the nation's core interests, as it sees them. So when the Muslim Brotherhood or Freedom Justice Party, their political wing, talk about preferring a parliamentary system or a balanced parliamentary presidential system, whether the intention is this or not, this immediately affects the, army, uh, the army's perspectives and fortunes. And so when the army gets into this debate, it's debating not just some sort of hypothetical preferred constitutional model, it's, it's really debating much more than that. Um, now, broadly speaking, when we talk about this question of how to build a new type of relationship, part of this uh, involves asking the question, what do armies want? What do the armed forces want? And when we say, what do they want, who do we mean? Senior officers, middle-ranking officers, the conscripts, um, who, who's, who's the brain and mind of the army? In Turkey, the army established constitutionally through its own revised constitution, 1983, a National Security Council which allows the army to be directly involved in policy making at a national level in civilian affairs, the economy, education, whatever in Turkey. Um, in other words, it gave itself a constitutional mandate to have oversight over civilian politics rather than the reverse. Rightly or wrongly, the point is that was formally enshrined in something. And so you know who the, the thinking brain is in this case. You know, you've got the army commander, you've got the army general staff and, and the, the Supreme Military Council, whatever it's called, who actually sit down and think about industrialization, capitalist development, banking. They actually think about these things. But in Egypt, who's been thinking about these things for the last 20 years, let alone 50 years? Well, my view is no one partly because they weren't ever structured to do that. In Algeria, the army improvised during the 1990s, and there's a sort of shadowy board of officers that is the real power behind the scenes that has no constitutional mandate, but that does think about who we want as the next president, who we don't want, and what to do about privatizing the oil sector and blocking it if that's what they prefer, which is what they preferred. Um, so in each case, I think it's interesting to pose the question of when we say the army wants, the army seeks, the army will do, you know, what do we mean by this? But let's flip this around the other way. In quite a few Arab cases, Syria, Iraq, although Iraq's not part of the uprisings, Libya, Yemen, the question is what does society want or what do certain societal forces want? Because we don't have armies that are as professionally formed as the Egyptian and Tunisian cases that don't have the same formal institutional autonomy and corporate identity in those other countries as in Egypt and Tunisia. That's partly why in early 2011 the Tunisian or Egyptian armies acted in a certain way vis-a-vis -a, -vis a president who was making them increasingly uncomfortable with the attempt to you know, be in, in office for life or uh, worried them because of succession issues or worried them because of excessively rapacious uh, neoliberal economic 
policies, in particular privatization, that served them and their families and their cronies. These armies developed this sort of feeling and at a certain point had the cohesion to act in a certain way. The Syrian army or the Iraqi army or the Yemeni army or the Libyan army are a different type of beast. They, they've never formed this sort of uh, corporate identity in a class sense or, or institutional autonomous identity in a sort of organizational sense. The Libyan army, as I mentioned earlier, was, was marginalized for the past 20 years. And instead, the Qaddafi built up the security battalions and other revolutionary committees. He played with them from time to time. Um, in Syria, we've had a proliferation of security agencies, but also paramilitary agencies. And there are different ways in each case that this is uh, different forms this is taken. But <coughs> my main point is that in pretty much all these cases, if you look at recruitment into the armed forces, the relationship between state and society, between uh, the president and different sectors of the armed forces, what we actually have as much as an autocratic president is also a president who's hostage, as Robert Springboard and Clement Henry argued in their book in 2001 on globalization of Middle East politics, I think very correctly, pointed out that some of the most autocratic authoritarian leaders actually were all the more hostage to their own core constituencies and communities precisely because they relied on them particularly to maintain and, and, and sustain their power. But what this also describes then is this sort of situation where society in a sense captures the armed forces. For instance, let me take other examples. Um, one, one form of this is say in Yemen for tribesmen, the term is always a, a loose one I think, but let's say tribesmen in Ma'rib close a road or kidnap a western oil engineer or um, basically what they want is for say a hundred or two hundred or a thousand of their young men to be put on the army payroll for a, you know absolutely minimal wage and then that's you know the crisis is over and in that manner Saleh proactively using this approach um, expanded and extended state patronage within Yemen over the past at least since 1994 um, by, among other things, creating parallel military and paramilitary formations, some nominally under the Ministry of Interior, some under the Ministry of Defense, <coughs> with no real command at the head of them, where you had these sort of tribal levies who actually stayed at home, they didn't show up for anything, or other <coughs> soldiers who enrolled in the army but then also enrolled in a ministry and actually held two government jobs at the same time. One reason why the Americans were trying to push biometrics on Yemen, of all places, I mean, think at one part of the, of the world where there are other priorities, uh, because they wanted to cut down on the number of duplication of, of jobs in the civil sector, in the state sector. Or where the Coast Guard commander rents out his ships, for instance, to the company running the liquid, the LNG port terminal, the uh, liquefied natural gas terminal uh, on the southern coast, um, you know, as, as a private enterprise. That's one example of society capturing sort of uh, an armed force. You could say another is uh, rather different in Jordan, where it's understood since the 1970 civil war at least that the Jordanian army is almost entirely East Banker, Transjordanian, and that Palestinians are not brought in and certainly are not allowed into the elite units or the key units, armor, or into the senior command uh, positions, unless maybe they're doctors and they're in the medical services. Conscription was ended many years ago precisely so as not to reflect the true demographic balance of the population and to allow a policy that slanted one direction and not the other. 
Now, I'm not saying what's right or wrong or what the reasoning is of each uh, government or ruler. I'm just pointing out how then the army, in the view of the East Bankers, becomes their property. And say the privatization that was launched in 2008 or towards late 2007 of key parts of Amman, Jordan, the capital, the Hussein Medical Center, for instance, medical of Medina Tabi, um, which is a military hospital, um, more even than the uh, attempted sale of the downtown area of Abdali, which was uh, military headquarters and so on, the, 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 the reaction to the sale of the King Hussein military hospital was couched in almost entirely or very heavily nationalist terms, that this was a, a, a sale of, of heritage, and it was clearly understood whose heritage this was and whose it wasn't i.e. it was not a Palestinian heritage, it was the nasty Palestinians of the royal court, such as Basim Awadallah, one of these neoliberal digitals, as they were nicknamed there, were you know, with it, part of the web economy, wanted to privatize everything. Um, and they were selling off assets that meant a lot emotionally, but also ultimately uh, economically, to military personnel and retirees, who could hide, thinly hide an East Bank nationalist reaction under the guise of this is neoliberalism <coughs> run wild. <coughs> Lebanon is another great case. In my, where I grew up in Beirut, I remember, well, of course, I mean, back in 75 when the army shot uh, Ma'ruf Saad, a Sunni Muslim member of parliament for Sidon, who was uh, a working man by background, who was a Nasserite politically, who led uh, protest marches against uh, inflation and the privatization of in effect, of a large part of the seashore for a private shipping company that was owned by the ex-president Kamil Shamoun. So he came from that background, was shot dead by the army uh, in a protest march, in response to which there was mayhem in Sidon and other areas. Uh, the army patrols were attacked. And what happened was there were counter demonstrations professing loyalty and love and support for the army in the Christian heartland. In other words, this is our army. Back then, later in the 1990s, after the civil war was all over and the Christians had, so to speak, lost the civil war, in my neighborhood, which was predominantly, though not at all exclusively, Sunni Muslim, I kept seeing banners which were Jamait al what was it called? Jamait al it's the Ahbash al-Jamait al Islami or whatever. They're a particular Sunni Muslim Salafi movement, which, which had also close ties to Lebanese and Syrian intelligence, uh, said. Um, but, but they and others who professed loudly their love for the army, and again, in a sense, were claiming the army back and saying, this is now our army, you know, you've lost. And of course, more recently, 2008 and onwards, when the army stood by as Hezbollah and its allies took over West Beirut, suddenly Sunnis were disappointed and had lost faith in the army, and it was sort of like the army's theirs, i.e. Shia, and of course this is shared among some of the sort of strategic thinkers in the West or U.S. policymakers who regard parts of the army at least as military intelligence and so on as, you know, Hezbollah allies. Time and again, in other words, we have this sort of um, labeling of part or all of an army as belonging to a particular sect within these divided societies. So all this comes into the picture, and therefore when we talk about um, negotiating future civil military relations, let's say in Syria, let's say in Libya. We're not going to escape debates about, so 
Is this going to be headed by someone from Benghazi or from Tripoli or from this tribe or that tribe? Will an Amazir ever become commander-in-chief or are they always going to remain in minority status if allowed in the army at all? Do they want to come in the army? We don't know. And the same in Syria. You think there's going to be a future Syria with the United Army, with Alawi commanders for a while? I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying these aren't the obvious questions, but they're just as much questions about the renegotiation of the nature of the state of the political system, of whether power is centralized or decentralized, how it's reapportioned, if it's truly democratic in the sense of majority rule, is it also democratic in the sense of protection of minority rights and participation and civil rights and basic political rights as well. So in a way, for me, these are parallel debates, and by looking at one, I'm going to, you know, I can explore parts of the other. Um, but even in countries like Egypt, which are far more homogeneous, which are in a sense more class-based rather than societal, sort of frag frag societally fragmented, or Tunisia equally, um, it's not so evident that there is a wholly different debate because there also we have questions about Islamic versus secular, which are still bubbling under the surface in Tunisia, may yet disrupt and derail the, democrat the democratic process. We have yet to see, hopefully it won't but it's, it's a real problem. In Egypt, clearly, it's freaking a number of people out, and whether people within Egypt, let alone in the West, can relate to a parliament in Egypt that forms the next government with a strong Islamic bloc. Um, the, these are all fundamental debates about what is Egypt. And the army has its own views about whether this is Egypt or not, as it sees Egypt. And that is partly why it has attempted several times over the past 11 months, most recently in November, to draft, to formulate drafts that articulate constitutional or supra-constitutional principles that should guide the nature of Egypt in the future and the right of the army to intervene at moments it deems necessary in order to correct the course of Egypt's ship. And one of them is precisely not to allow anyone who happens to have a majority in a particular period to reshape the state. The way they put it ingenuously, of course, is, uh, you know, supposing we get socialists in the majority and they socialize the economy. We want a free market economy. Well, we all know that's <coughs> not really what they're worried about. They're worried about Islamists, Islamizing the country. Um, and, and one problem here is the fragmentation of the civilian parties and institutions that face the armed forces and that can form a united front and really drive democratization when in some cases they themselves are deeply divided. I'm not sure they want full democratization because of what it may give some of their own rivals within the civilian arena. So I'm just again painting some of the complexity of this. Now I want to touch on two main, two further broad uh, themes and then wrap up. One is to go back to what do armies want? Well, they want to protect their budgets. Now, is that because they want to be able to buy high-tech weapons or whatever weapons they really think they need or they really like to play with? Um, is it as much about protecting salaries and allowances and bonuses and um, perks and so on? Um, which, which points to the very critical issue of living standards in terms of service. We tend not to think about these things. But for a majority of people in most armies, certainly conscript-based armies, military service is not pleasant at all. Um, pay is next to zero. I mean, at most they get a pack of cigarettes. 
um, Egyptian conscripts complained bitterly that they're given such terrible food that they're obliged to spend the tiny bit of money they have in the army canteen which sells products from the army's farms and factories. Um, we can get into all of that sort of thing. But any, everything to do with living standards, but also ar army officers. I mean, do you really think that most army officers have tremendous pay? Well, they don't. Maybe in Saudi Arabia, where the salary bill is immense. I mean, most of the published defense budget is about salaries and recurrent costs, not about purchases. Um, but most officers in Egypt, let's say, certainly in Syria and Iraq, um, live in what you, the Victorians used to call genteel poverty. I mean, they're, they're, they're not rich, certainly. And if you see a general being driven around in his car, he's got a tiny little fiat, which he can barely fit into with a driver in front. I mean, that's not great status. Um, however, you do have many officers who've benefited a lot more and who do have bigger salaries and benefits and so on, and who drew, do drive nicer cars. Uh, it depends from country to country. Because, and here I think there's a particularly fascinating area to research, and I'm working on this, um, of post-career paths. What, do, what life is there after military service? Unlike most of us, certainly unlike academics, nowadays, especially now that uh, retirement age has been lifted uh, or, or opened up, um, we stay in our jobs pretty much as long as, well, at least till 65 or so um, in, in, in Western or most other civilian bureaucracies and so on, in other cases more. The military, however, are structured to retire people early so as to keep bringing in fresh blood and junior officers and young energy and so on. So you have a very sort of narrow pyramid at the top and most of the people who start at the bottom never make it that high up, obviously. Most of them end up leaving at 34 or 44, which means that you've got thousands, tens of thousands of people, some of whom are senior officers, who exit the army every year and enter the job market again, and they're entitled to the question is, what do they do next? And do they do it thanks to, especially in an authoritarian structure, where they're immediately parachuted elsewhere within the civilian bureaucracy, as you can see around the Middle East, into local government, into parliament, into other, par other ministries, or into certain enterprises, economic enterprises and businesses and state-owned companies and so on. And here you do, in fact, have lots of cases where the military actually are have penetrated the civilian sector a lot. And in my view, this is less about the military as an institution dominating the civilian sector as it is actually the corruption or degeneration of the military as an autonomous institution over the past 20 years or 30 years, as authoritarian leaders have deliberately co-opted them into the crony system and the patronage system and made them partners in it, which has which fundamentally undermines and threatens their corporate identity, their professionalism, their operational capability. Um, and I think that this is a good in area where what I mentioned earlier on about remembering that all this is very much in movement now, it's fluid. What an officer who now sits as governor of the Red Sea governorate in Egypt or in local municipal council in Ma'an or Karak, wherever he may be, what the next phase <coughs> represents for this person may be something totally threatening and he's going to fight back and kick back because he doesn't want to lose these privileges or the people behind him who are in the retirement chain who are about to go on to retirement or will within two years or three years know that you know, their hope that they've been waiting for, their turn <coughs> to get into this system or the gravy drain 
um, is, is now maybe fatally prejudiced. So what are they going to do? Maybe they're going to fight back. Maybe they're going to call for tougher, sterner policies, uh, harsher crackdown in Tahrir Square, uh, tougher negotiation in Libya between the rebel fighters and the remnants of the old army as to who now gets to reshape the army and command the new army, the sort of debates you had in Iran after 79, and why you have two armies still today in Iran, partly because of this sort of thing. So um, there may be opportunities at the same time in this transition for some of these officers to join new ships, to join new trains, and to make good in the new system. We may also see that. Um, I should just touch very quickly on issues of culture or the mentality. If an armed, if, if a military institution like any other institution, the bureaucracy, universities, whoever, have been operating within a given system for decades, then they're going to reflect many of its values and mores. Um, you know, we in, in Western academe, uh, the Cold War was the dominant framework in, for, for at least the social sciences. And in many respects, it undermined our ability to think methodologically beyond what we knew and what we what policy sort of drew and required. Um, but you could say the same of almost any institution. Uh, now we're all moving into business models and you know free market economics in the university sector. This is a dominant ideology and we all have to perform within it. And if that lasts for 20 or 30 years, it's going to be very difficult thinking out of the box next time around. Well, so I mean, it's, it's like this everywhere. My point here is just that as with, say, post-Franco Spain, which discovered that after democratization, it still had an army that had been formed for 40 years under Franco and still thought Francoist. And this actually nearly derailed the democrat democratic process in 1980 as the army nearly mounted a coup d'etat. And suddenly the civilians woke up to the need to deal with the army and with the entire mentality. What we see in Tahrir Square in Egypt is very much about the legacy of authoritarianism, paternalism, patriarchy. The army doesn't always hit back and kick back in Tahrir Square because they have a plan. I think they have no plan. They have a lot of instincts. Most of their instincts are conservative, uh, masculine, patriarchal, top-down, authoritarian, dealing with the layal, the children, the dependents. This is the mentality. But this is also the mentality in the Muslim Brotherhood and it's the mentality throughout the civilian bureaucracy. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of legacy here that's going to be very difficult to, to uh, attack. So, to wrap up, Finally, I want to look at how does one negotiate this? Well, very briefly. Um, <coughs> one broad question, the way I've chosen to present this to you is, does, do, do armed forces, well, whether they negotiate directly or indirectly, but do they end up with new formal rules of, I mean, is the relationship formalized or does it remain informal? In other words, does the army get certain privileges or immunities or exclusions written into new constitutions that are being drafted? As occurred in Latin America, in what um, has been called protected democracies, where for Pinochet to hand over power after a decade of rule, uh, or the Brazilian army, or the Argentinian army, or the Peruvian, etc., in almost every case, the military negotiated with civilians over the terms, and the terms were usually terms that protected their long-term privileges, their immunity from persecution, their exception from civilian constitutional and legal frameworks. 
And many of these are frameworks are actually still in place today. We haven't had a coup d'etat in, in well, Hafez came close, but in, in much of Latin America for a long while, but it's accepted that the military are a real player. Now, whether the military in Latin America today is the same player it was in 1993 or 91 or 89 or 83 when it negotiated these protected democracies is a very good question. Probably the answer would be no. It's something yet, you know, yet another different thing. But in Egypt or Tunisia, Libya or Syria, <coughs> wherever else, um, to the extent that armies feel that they have to take the process and transition seriously, that they really have to start thinking about this, they're going to start seeking formal draft in constitutions or supra-constitutional principles or to set up new national defense councils within which their role and mandate is legally enshrined and accepted by the civilians and, they, and can be maintained. Uh, and this may therefore lead to more struggle and more confrontation precisely because the military are trying to do something that most civilian democrats should try and prevent. Um, the, um, of course, going formal may also inadvertently produce negative results. In Iraq, the Americans, for the best reasons in this case, tried to inculcate a clear separation of civilian from military in the new Iraqi army and to separate the two so that the army wasn't uh, an arena for competition between different political or social forces. The result, however, ironically, is that the army therefore became more isolated and more under the rule of the prime minister who has increasingly taken over the armed forces, Nur al-Malki, and has been getting rid of officers he doesn't like. Uh, Toby is the one of the preeminent experts here, can, can correct me on this, but, um, and has been uh, entrenching his position within the armed forces. So, you know, we can get all sorts of results from this formal process. But equally, can the army rely on informal processes and negotiations? How does the Egyptian army know, for instance, that if it doesn't have any formal text, but secures uh, the next president, makes sure that the next president is someone compliant or pliant, maybe one of its own? Okay, that works for the next presidential term, but how do we know that the next president will be as pliant? And the army doesn't know this and its interests are too deeply entrenched and vested in the entire country, in the economy, in the civilian apparatus, as well as in its budgets, in controlling exclusively, without audit, its budget, U.S. foreign military assistance and other discretionary funds. Um, yeah, how are you going to negotiate this? The, the final point to bring in here, then, and I, I stop there, and this is something we can expand on if you like the discussion, is that in terms of uh, the politics of this, well, on the one hand, we have in a growing number of Middle East countries and Arab countries, we see that it's Islamist forces, parties, most of which regard themselves as centrist Islamist or moderate or whatever you want to call them, middle of the road, um, coming into parliament or government from Morocco all the way through Turkey, if you want to include non-Arab Turkey, um, which are the only forces strong enough to take on the role of rolling back the military, which we've seen in Turkey. However, this is something that may or may not engage Western powers, which are of not primary importance, but at least of secondary importance in determining where things go. The other aspect here is whether how the economy is run, more specifically how business is done in any given country. In other words, the relationship between economics, economic power, decision-making in the economic arena, and political power and political decision-making, if these are still these remain deeply and intimately connected, 
i.e. where the economy runs through a crony manner, through patronage, through parasitical relationships, as it did under Husni Mubarak or Zain Abdin bin Ali or Ali Abdullah Saleh and others, then it's difficult to see how the sort of Anatolian bourgeoisie that emerged in Turkey, based on the small and medium business enterprises that started to expand thanks to liberalization of the 80s, thanks to integration uh, and, and interaction with the EU, it's the growth, this massive growth of a new type of middle class that provided votes for the AKP on the one side, that resented the old Kemalist structure on the other, and therefore also fought back against the extent, the extent of military power. And this, I believe, is the basis for the ability of the AKP in less than a decade to transform the civil-military relationship in Turkey, which is quite an astonishing feat. Uh, there are all sorts of problems or other negative consequences that might arise out of what's happening in Turkey. But I simply want to point out that unless there are similar types of processes in Egypt or in Tunisia or in, in Syria in the future, which transform the relationship between the generation of wealth, of income, etc., and possession of political or administrative bureaucratic power, if that's not transformed, we're going to replicate many of the old patterns of relationships, which I think is what we've seen in Iraq with huge changes in how politics work, i.e. it's more democratic, and yet so much is being reproduced in terms of patronage and competition between factions and cliques over patronage, simply reset within a parliamentary system instead of the old you know, sort of strongman uh, system of Qasim onwards. I'll stop there and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. Incredibly ambitious and, and wide-ranging talk. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. Um, I regret <coughs> my instructions. Um, when I uh, point you out, please uh, stand up, say who you are, ask one question, and the question is something that uh, needs an answer, not a, uh, a rambling statement. And I'll take you uh, one at a time, unless we run out of time. And or maybe something. make a succinct, concise challenge. I mean, or addition. But, okay. but not a ramble. Okay. No, no rambling, and uh, our chair wants uh, challenges, I'd rather have questions, but we'll leave that up to you. Who's first? Sir, yeah. Kavi, Professor, would you agree that unlike the Syrian army, the Egyptian army has a distinction of being dependent on the dollar 1.3 billion a year a from from America and uh, as we know that it uh, runs a parallel uh, state structure with its own industries <coughs> and its own economy as a matter of fact how do you see and, and one more thing, if I may mention, that uh, because of this dependence on American aid, its high command has this close relationship with the neighboring Arab countries. I particularly allude to General uh, Omar Suleiman, who was the security chief of Hosni Mubarak. His appointment as the uh, as the advisor to Prince Crown Prince Knife mm -hmm. uh, uh, on security. So this uh, uh, combination of facts 
dependent on America, close cooperation with the Wahhabi counter-revolutionary regimes. How is it going to affect the transition to the civilian zone? Um, the U.S. relationship is regarded by the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces in Egypt, that rules Egypt now, um, as absolutely vital. And in my view, the Supreme Council would fight quite viciously against any one or any policy or proposal, whatever, in Egypt who it thought threatened the continuation of that relationship. So for instance, people who want to, let's say, tear up the peace treaty with Israel, which is the sine qua non of the military assistance, would obviously see, be seen as, as, as mortal enemies. Whether that gives the US enormous leverage, however, is another question, because I think every time the US has tried to use leverage, including assistance leverage over Egypt, um, they've not been successful. Whether they've not used it forcefully enough, maybe that, that's an issue. But my feeling also is that the military um, would not give in to leverage or blackmail on anything they regard as an equally vital interest within the country. Um, so I don't think we can read this in only one direction. Um, what I pick up from the Egyptian military is that they're actually pretty resentful of the manner in which they have to keep going to Washington DC and renegotiating and persuading Congress and they actually feel this is arrogant, they don't like US policy in the region although they help implement it. Um, I get this pretty consistently so I think it's <coughs> on balance genuine. Uh, which doesn't mean that at the end of the day they won't still go along and play along and do all sorts of things. But I think this is going to be increasingly problematic because Congress, for reasons of its own, not related only to Egypt or democracy, um, seems set on playing much more of a foreign policy role in the US, in part to offset the Obama administration. There are all sorts of different factors here. And the US Congress is likely to start using the one instrument it feels it has of foreign policy, which is Congress specifically, which is um, withholding or offering financial inducements. And that's an extremely crude and blunt instrument. And I think the fact that Congress is inclined to use it and seems to feel it's the only thing it can do, and because there's also ideological and domestic factors there, um, I think this is going to become increasingly problematic for the Egyptian military, and they're going to get increasingly caught in the middle between these, these sorts of... Um, but they, they fall back on crude nationalism, uh, nationalism as well. I mean, that, you know, we're Egyptians, we'll stand up, we have our dignity, we don't take... And they made a big play over the past year of refusing both Arab, Gulf, uh, Arab money from the Gulf and uh, IMF loans and donations and grants and so on for no obvious good economic or financial reason. I mean, you talk about conditions and strings attached from the IMF. No one actually sat down and negotiated. But from the Arab countries, there weren't clear strings attached. And it's not at all clear just why this happened. On the Saudi aspect, um, I mean, I think we shouldn't overplay the sort of the grand alliance. I mean, clearly Egypt uh, does align with um, the West, the US on Iran, or Saudi Arabia on Iran. What that really means from day to day, I'm not so clear. I mean, since Egypt doesn't have a permanent vote in the Union Security Council, it's not going to send troops there. And then, in fact, if you look at what Egypt's doing vis-a-vis -vis Syria right now, it looks like the Egyptians are actually starting to shift 
into clear opposition to uh, further pressure on Syria, which is not what the U.S. wants. So I think we have to go a bit cautious on our alignment uh, perceptions, which is not to say that the Saudis don't have an interest in Egypt, and one of their interests seems to be that they're not happy with putting Mubarak on trial. I'm not sure that the Supreme Council is happy with putting Mubarak on trial either. Um, and um, there are reports about the Saudis, private Saudi donors funding Saudi <coughs> groups in Egypt. Um, how much of that represents Saudi government policy? How much of this represents uh, private policy? How clear the Saudis are on just what they want to do in the region? I think they feel very threatened, and their responses have varied over the last year, from paying no attention to Syria, or precious little attention to Syria, to suddenly becoming proactive in late October, November, along with Qatar, but I think since then, since December, probably starting to shift somewhat in, in various ways. Um, probably we can dig up more and more, but um, I mean, I'll say that for now. Roger, I'm puzzled by the, what sounds like a simple question, uh, how popular are arms we were all thinking of Egypt, I'm puzzled because I detect, with very limited knowledge, I have to say, uh, a kind of ambivalence. There are, I, I've met some Egyptians who say uh, we're against the junta, but we think the army is a noble patriotic force. Uh, I don't know if that you get a similar answer in Algeria. People hate the bourgeois, as they call it in Algeria, and must be conscious that it's an amount of civilian is this partly because of the historic role <coughs> of the army in the past? In Algeria, is it partly a product of social factors? People still want their boys to get into the army and want to believe that, in general terms, it's a good institution, even when things go wrong at the top. I'm puzzled. There seems to be a contradiction. quite a kettle of fish um, in that there's, there's lots of diverse issues in there um, on broadly on popularity um, I mean there are those in Egypt who make the same distinction as in Algeria that they're talking about le pouvoir rather than the rank and file of the armed forces which waged war against Israel and you know, won in 1973 according to the narrative and so on um, and I think of obviously for some activists in Egypt this is a, a clever tactic I mean you don't want to say you're against the whole army. Um, you say you're just against the top command, many of whom are not in operational command. I mean, a large part of the Supreme Council are actually retired officers. Um, the, uh, the Supreme Council itself seems just as keen also on giving out the message that we and the army are one. There isn't two separate things. We are the army, and so if you attack us, you're attacking the army. And they're just as keen to promote this for the same, more or less the same tactical political reasons. Um, you know, you go to Egypt, you talk to various people, and um, it's clear that there's this sort of idea that out there there's this 70-80% of the Egyptian people who either all love the army and have no time for all the disruption and the strikes and the protests, or at least not anymore, and need stability, need to make a living. Most of them are the poorer people, most of them are lower income. Um, and yet, we also see that clearly 
something like 70% or so of the same people apparently voted for Nur Party and the Freedom and Justice Party. Now, is that because they saw no contradiction between the two, that the Freedom Justice Party and Nur Party love the army too, and they're part of the army, and so on? Well, of course, we do know that the above a certain rank in the army, anyone who's deemed politically suspicious is weeded out. So the army is not historically associated with the Islamists. So how does your ordinary Egyptian voter in some city or village, is that voter thinking, I love the army, uh, but the Muslim brothers are good, uh, pious, or whatever else they offer. <coughs> I don't know how they work these things out. And since there hasn't yet been an open sort of confrontation or at least uh, distinction made between these two bodies or things, uh, maybe many Egyptians haven't been forced or inclined to make choices or con to, 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 to tackle this consciously. Um, but what I'm interested in also is that the Supreme Council clearly thinks it's really important to keep this people, the people on its side. Um, a lot of their rhetoric is about, um, you know, not paying too much attention to these sort of sometimes worthy revolutionaries in Tahrir Square, sometimes people who are out of control, sometimes people who are agent provocateur and foreign agents. It varies. But the Egyptian army does this on behalf of the great Egyptian people whom it best understands and represents and whom it springs from. It does other things which are rather more material like opening bakeries and butcheries, uh, giving out food packages in Ramadan or outside of Ramadan, um, you know, publicizing everything it does for development for the country, building bridges, building highways, and most recently investing a lot of its own money in building so-called social housing for the poor uh, around the country. Um, this is partly its self-image, supposedly, of the Nasserite uh, legacy of, of social justice and welfare and redistribution, but in which it controls the funds and determines you know, these sort of policies. But although, I mean, it's, it's very evident that this is also PR, it's public relations. Um, whether the 70-80% out there, how, what they really think, I don't know. Um, the elections, as I said, they're one guide and since the army didn't field candidates, then they voted Islamist. If in the near future the Muslim Brotherhood sticks to some of its statements about the inevitability and necessity of the army's budget and economy and so on coming under civilian oversight and parliamentary scrutiny and that this is absolute and that the army may enjoy immunity for the past but not into the future. <coughs> now these are very clear explicit statements from some Muslim Brotherhood leaders. And if they stick to that, then that's going to be very important, very impressive, and essential for democratic transition. Whether they get to implement this depends on whether they can balance parliamentary power with presidential power or not, and so on. I mean, they're, 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 as I said, this is a kettle of fish, and there are many other issues. Um, but broadly, I think that um, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Algeria, whether it's uh, elsewhere, we have an increased overlap or intermeshing between different types of questions about the preferred political order, whether people want a secular state or an Islamist state, a democratic state or a non-democratic state, whether this is seen as a choice between that versus bread and butter and stability and jobs or you know, minimum wages. I mean, sometimes these are presented as direct choices. Uh, question about do you want real democratization in, I don't know, Jordan, if that means um, 
shifting the East Bank versus Palestinian relationship in ways that open up civil sector jobs and army jobs to Palestinians, or that remove what's left of the social welfare protection system for East Bankers through job uh, through through public sector jobs. Um, is this what democracy and reform mean? In which case, why should people vote for it if, depending on where they're sitting, right? So, um, I mean, this thing about popularity of armies, as I said, I think gets very much filtered through these societal interests and sort of social corporate interests or class interests, if you like. Yeah. Um, Probably, students saw it. Uh, wanted to ask about, do you believe the army has a particular, in Egypt, has a particular game plan for the future? I'm telling with the, their relationship to Hispanur, for example, where uh, read numerous cases of uh, election fraud by the army in favor of Hispanur uh, in cities like Mahalla and um, Suez and London, places like that. Mr. General, do you believe they have a game plan for the future of consolidating their power? Well, the short answer is no. I think they face a real problem. I don't think the Supreme Council has a, a clear plan, a master plan or a blueprint or a vision, certainly not of the economy, not of policing, law and order, not of anything really. And not even, I think, entirely of how to <coughs> manipulate the political process. I mean, they... Um, took quite a while reaching a point where they could actually start laying out the transitional process and saying we're going to go for elections first uh, for the parliament and for the Shura Council, then we go for constitution drafting, then we finally elect a president, which they've then changed at least twice since then. Um, there have been all sorts of reasons, including a lot of contestation from political forces, but that only tells you that they <coughs> didn't have a plan that they were so set on that they would defend it at all costs. Uh, on the contrary, in a way, it's a good thing that they've been willing to change, but in that case, what they should have done from the outset, and they were asked to do or invited to do and refused to do, was to form a genuine military-civilian partnership, as happened in Tunisia, where the army didn't try to dominate the process. On the contrary, allowed uh, a civilian committee representing the most important political directions to form the committee for the protection of the goals of the revolution, to oversee the process and to determine whether to have a constituent assembly that would be elected and then draft the new constitution, or as in Egypt, uh, a technical committee to draft a new constitution appointed by the parliament that would then be ratified by a referendum. These are very different models. The main difference is that in Tunisia, the army backed what the civilians wanted and there was a real partnership, whereas in Egypt, the, Egypt, the army said, we don't do committees. You know, but then they didn't actually know what else to do because they suddenly found themselves doing, faced with literally hundreds of day-to-day -day decisions and administrative decrees from appointing a university head here to uh, accepting the replacement of civilian bureaucrats there to deciding whether to sign an agreement with the IMF or to accept money from the Saudis or any, I mean, all the million things that any state does every day, and the Egyptian state is big, they had no idea and they actually shot themselves in the foot royally because they would have been so much better off with a genuinely empowered interim cabinet that had the power to take all these decisions uh, and this executive authority instead of which the uh, Supreme Council actually blocked its own interim government, uh, paralyzed it 
and also whenever laws, and we hear this from ministers, I mean, who say we actually prepared the law on labor unions or on NGOs or whatever, whatever, um, very quickly, <coughs> and submitted, to, submitted it to the Supreme Council for ratification, and they're still sitting on it, and you hear this <coughs> again. And in the meantime, the Egyptian economy has drifted, and the army's response is to dig into its own pockets and donate a billion dollars to the treasury, and then the month after, another billion, which this time was a loan, um, which of course makes you ask, how come they've got all this money sitting around in their bank accounts, and where'd they get it from? But, but all this, I think, points to the fact that they have no real answers, and that's why I said earlier, they're left with instincts. Um, this could point, ultimately, to divisions within the Supreme Council. I mean, um, we can't assume that all officers are necessarily conservative reactionary people. Uh, we saw that in, in Tunisia, in the sense that their basic instincts were actually fundamentally Republican, and that's what they keep saying. We are Republicans. And they're starting to accept that Republicanism à la Française, which was uh, à la France, I guess, le Republique, yeah, so it's, it's à la Française, uh, was um, laïc, was secular, non-religious specifically in, in Tunisia. Um, now they're accepting that maybe Republicanism has to be a new Tunisian model with a religious face. And they're sort of trying to adapt to that. Um, the Egyptian army doesn't have this anymore. After 20 years, and I'm specifically thinking of the last 20 years, of being co-opted into Mubarak's patronage system, it actually ceased to think about big policy issues, political issues, economic issues. The Tunisian army, actually you hear officers saying, we don't, you know, we want civilians to run everything, but we have a lot of competence and experience, and we think that the army, the, the civilians should come to us, the government should come to us on major national policy issues and get our advice. They don't have to listen to it, but they should at least have an advisory structure. And they start saying that you know, food issues, food production, for instance, is important because it affects political stability, riots, so there's such a thing as food security, we should have a say. Now, is that a worrying trend or not? That's something else. But in Egypt, the army actually came in with no real views on most of this stuff. Um, except this sort of knee-jerk reaction, which is the people are starving, let's give them bread, uh, open up our bakeries, um, announce social housing. Um, and I think that is both worrying because <coughs> it means that the transitional process has been much more drawn out than it needed to be. It has been more contentious than it needed to be. It was not used to establish the notion of civilian partnership, at least in running things and in thinking about things. On the contrary, what it did was encourage fragmentation and rivalry among the civilian political parties who tried to get the military's ear and who squabbled among each other. And so the military understood after a few months where it thought it needed the civilians, <coughs> that quite the reverse. The political parties needed the military, up, up to the elections at least. Um, so the, um, the, 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 the Egyptian army, I think, uh, and, and they failed, one of their worst failures was they failed to seize the opportunity after February to restructure entirely the police, the, the whole internal security and police sector in Egypt, which was thoroughly despised throughout the population, had collapsed in the revolution, and this was an ideal moment to start restructuring it in a very serious way, except that, of course, these were people who were in many places buddies from the same military academies, not only from police academies, they thought in the same way, they were part of the same regime for the last 20 years. Which is also a reminder that unlike Tunisia, 
the Egyptian army did not restore democracy. I mean, there wasn't a democracy to begin with to restore in Egypt, but you understand what I'm saying. The Egyptian army did not come along one day and say, we, I think, have had enough of Mubarak, it's time to go, Mr. President. That happened only after all other options were attempted in the space of the last few weeks of Mubarak's tenure. So, um, not having a master plan um, is healthy, though, because this does mean that I think the Egyptian army is actually much more vulnerable than we maybe think it is. And that if faced with firm, a firm civilian <coughs> front and sustained pressure, uh, backed preferably by key external powers, in particular the US, then I think the Egyptian army will, the Supreme Council, understand that they, they can't have it their way. And they'll be forced to give in because they can't present strong, valid arguments for holding on to certain things. But if they're not faced with that sort of position, then I think they'll get everything they can keep. And we may end up with a very bad compromise. So we'll, we'll have to see. I'll just add one, one quick uh, half minute there on going back to the first question on, on the US. I'll, I'll add here, it's relevant, is what message has the US been giving the Egyptian military throughout the past period? And I think there the US has been giving mixed messages uh, through much of this, or when it's been given, giving a more or less un united message, it's usually a sort of a go slow message, status quo message. And that's been very worrying because I think it's encouraged the Egyptian command to factor that into their calculations, that they can afford to play games and extend the process and try and work for advantage because the US is okay with that. That's what they were hearing. And from what I know from the American side, that is indeed what they're being told. Um, and the NGO raids, the raids you heard about around Christmas when the military and the police and so on raided a number of local and western NGOs, I think that was actually a shot across the bows of the US administration, which suddenly woke up and started saying, we want an early transition to a full civilian president. And the Egyptian military are saying, hello? You were telling us to go slow. What's going on here? So that was, I think, in a sort of an early instance of Mubarak-style power politics with, with the Americans. Mm -hmm. Ah, now we're going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Galeriani. I don't have enough insight to be honest, but um, 
what Algeria raises, I think, is something rather different, which is that one, one reason why <coughs> Algeria hasn't had an uprising so far, although you'd have thought by some indicators and measures it should have had, um, is precisely that the Algerian political spectrum and societal sort of interests have been have become very fragmented and compartmentalized in certain respects. I mean, that, that's the understanding I have. And that this means that um, there hasn't been the sort of convergence of a number of different sectors of society or political forces on common ground that would uh, lead to either a, a sort of big challenge in the streets to the government or to any other t sort of uh, political initiative or process. Um, what I really want to say with that is that I think in Algeria, my, my, my assumption would be, and I, this is what I would go and try and investigate and test, is what I was suggesting about Egypt and could be the case elsewhere, which is that if the military are dealing with a fragmented civilian arena or political arena, it becomes very possible to play all sorts of games and to play people off against each other. And certainly in Egypt, one of the factors has been until the elections have started to, you know, mark things out more clearly, um, was that the illiberals of Egypt, the so-called secular non-liberals, uh, and there's a lot of them, people of the old regime, some of the pseudo-liberal parties that also revealed rather illiberal sort of, uh, feelings, um, people who wished the military to go on ruling or to exercise continuing influence into the future precisely because that would best protect their own interests. And there are, of course, those who might actually be liberals but felt that they were too inexperienced and weak to compete with the better organized Islamists and also toyed with an extended transition or an extended military role or at least having the military come in and hold the stick from the middle, as they say in Arabic, i.e. to keep the balance. Um, so I, I think we shouldn't overlook the extent to which the military in each case may be able to play politics. I think the Egyptian military have been very poor at this. They played it, and sometimes reasonably effectively. Um, but it doesn't help the Egyptian military when, say, someone like Mohammed Baradi, who maybe had slightly inflated <coughs> expectations of how quickly he could achieve results, and didn't have the staying power, sadly, uh, pulled out of the race. And in the longer term, that I don't think is good for the Egyptian military. They need to have a sort of a credible deal. <coughs> but in Algeria, where the military has been playing this game for far longer, I think I, I would assume that they can play parliamentary politics and factions against each other and so on. I mean, let's not forget that the Algerian parliament in particular has been almost you know, completely overtaken, or very heavily overtaken, by vested interests in which even opposition parties and even the Islamist parties over the past decade were pulled into parliament and became part of the patronage machine. So I think that gives a lot of scope for the military to play <coughs> politics behind the scenes. But the interesting question is if anyone takes them to the point that let's say AKP and Erdogan did in Turkey, where at a certain moment, or not even, let's go even further back in history to the 1980s with uh, Ozal, Turgut Ozal, who at a certain moment was presented with the army's preferred nominee to be the next army commander and presented his own and won, won the battle at a time when the military were all powerful. There are moments when, for various reasons, it becomes possible for civilians to play the same game and counter and form coalitions or call on the Americans or whatever. And I think, why not too in Algeria? Um, in Turkey that's happened, it may yet happen in Egypt. 
I can't really predict about Algeria, but uh, on, Gulf, on the Gulf, um, the main difference between most Gulf states and Yemen, which is why Yemen is so completely different, is that the rest are monarchies. And that appears to have had a very different impact on, on the whole, on politics, on reform, on dealing with instability, um, and on civil military relations. Um, they're not all the same model. Um, the Saudi <coughs> one, or the Emirati and Qatari ones, for instance, are different than the Bahraini one, different than the Omani one. Um, and they're also different from the Jordanian and Moroccan ones, which are fellow monarchies. They've all been far more resilient and durable and stable for, for decades, let alone over the last year, than their Republican counterparts. And I think there are all sorts of reasons for that. But when it comes to the military relationship, actually, I think there, there is, I mean, I don't think there's one model for a start. Um, and Saudi Arabia is, is an extremely interesting case, but one that's very different from any of its fellow monarchies, in terms of having two armies, for instance, in terms of having, you know, spending massive amounts of money on salaries, which, say, the Bahrainis can't afford, or the Omanis can't afford. Uh, Bahraini's sectarian politics are a big factor in who's who in the army and how it operates, just as who's who in Jordan is a big factor, again, in that same relationship. So um, I wouldn't talk about one model. Uh, but all that said, I don't see any particular crisis in civil military relations since, so far, ruling elites have not yet been, become divided over key policy issues. Um, and ruling families, royal families, in most of these cases, um, hold many of the senior command positions as well as cabinet positions and so on. And therefore, there's a very deep intermeshing. That means that the military is not some separate thing over there that may turn against its own government. It's, it's, it's much more ambiguity time. Right, as we rush towards 8 o'clock, I'll take finally a round of questions and allow Lizzie to sum up after that. So, Yusuf, then you, then you. From Iran. Uh, you mentioned about Iranian military, and you mentioned that actually there are two kinds of military. But is there any chance that uh, armies in countries like Egypt they follow the way that Revolutionary Guard in Iran has taken to take all this uh, financial, economic, and social sectors uh, at their hands? And somehow there is a certain belief that, as you said, they have imprisoned the Supreme Leader. Somehow they actually did their control. So, first, uh, in Egypt or Tunisia, <coughs> do military tend to follow the way that revolutionary guards have taken, take everything they can? And second, can they follow again the way in countries like Syria, uh, the army learned lessons from Iran to suppress and put pressure on the people in the same way that revolutionary guards do in Iran?
Um, just going back to Egypt, um, I agree with you that the Army has no clear plan, but I believe that they have a very clear goal to maintain their economic interests, and that in itself is quite, quite dangerous. Um, you mentioned that there might be informal processes in which they can maintain their economic interests. And in light of the fact that the presidential elections, you've had quite a few liberal candidates pull out, and now you have Islamists, and predominantly ex-military or ex-prime ministers running for presidents. Do you see um, the possibility of the army cutting a deal with the Muslim government, as some unfounded conspiracy theories uh, are widely saying? And two, if they would be fielding a candidate themselves and maybe going behind someone like Shafiq or someone of the sort. Um, and how can uh, the very few liberal but not really liberal candidates that are out there right now could potentially ward this off? Um, Genevieve Theodore, I guess I'm a postgraduate student here at the LSE. My question actually ties greatly into yours um, in that at the beginning of the Egyptian Revolution, there was talk of a, an alliance between the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, in light of increasing discontent among Egyptian civil society regarding the actions of the military in protests, um, is there a possibility that the military will attempt to forge some sort of um, lasting relationship with Islamist forces? Um, how do you think Islamists would react to uh, such actions? Or uh, do you believe that the military will be ultimately unwilling to relinquish the reins of power? And I'll observe wonderful things. And on the economic model, I think Egypt actually is closer in some ways to Pakistan than to Iran, um, to Indonesia, probably more than any of them. Uh, I can't go into detail on that at the time. Um, the IRGC model is, is, a, is a very significant one, but it's not, I think, one as closest to the Egyptian military. Uh, we, you hear a lot about the Egyptian military economy, um, besides the budget issues and so on, and I think a lot of what's said out there is not wrong, a lot of it is actually correct, but there's also a massive amount of, of inflation, <coughs> exaggeration, and misunderstanding of what the military economy is and where it operates and where, in fact, the military may be present but don't actually have ownership or control, which is a large part of the state-owned sector, where they're very present, but they don't actually own <coughs> and therefore adding <coughs> to the calculation of the military economy doesn't, is, is meaningless in economic terms or financial revenue terms, for instance. Um, which isn't to say that the military don't get involved in all sorts of activities, but they can't do it in quite the way that the Bunyad structure does in, in the Iranian case. Um, and also on the economy, um, I agree that um, not the only goal, but one of the, I mean, I think the main, at one level the main goal is to maintain control over Egyptian foreign policy and specifically not to go to war with Israel and lose American assistance and embroil Egypt and all sorts of things. That's a very important thing. The other important thing is um, control over anything to do with Finance, finances, funding, revenue streams, budgets, etc., and the disposition thereof, and to have total discretionary power over that. Um, I think further on you might start thinking about <coughs> immunity and related issues, but a lot of the immunity concerns, because the army wasn't so involved in human rights abuses and torture for many years, it was the security services, so we're talking about immunity from prosecution of the corruption issues and business interests and so on. Um, and it is very interesting that one of the early decrees of Dantawi, the commander-in-chief, uh, 
was last year to um, make prohibit the trying uh, or the you know, presenting military officers uh, before anything but military courts for any offense, including retired officers. So you know, this is what we mean by immunity and exclusion or exceptions. Um, so this is very important, although. As, as in other countries, um, the army can be persuaded to relinquish this sort of control as long as civilians sit down and work out what the army really wants and why it wants it. My concern here is that because the army under Mubarak ceased to maintain its sort of autonomous role, I mean, if only it had kept a totally autonomous military economy that had nothing to do with the civilian economy and that, that was the end of it, Egypt might be in a better position. The problem is that it's the, the borders have become so porous that it's, it's, a, it's a natural career path to go from senior command into directing a company. <coughs> that saying to people, this whole system will end now, is going to affect many people who are already outside the army as well as inside, and all of whom are networked with each other and across the state apparatus, the civilian bureaucracy, and across the police internal security sector. I mean, there's just literally thousands of officers out there. So, um, it, th this is vastly important and vastly interesting. How far the military will fight for that specifically is hard to say because no one's actually challenged this until recently. Um, I think it can be done. Now, whether the Muslim Brotherhood will achieve that goal, cut a deal, um, you know, they've made some very explicit statements so far. Um, whether that's just in order to make the army cut the deal, and then they'll give up on these things they've said, which is that the budget has to come under scrutiny and the economy has to come under scrutiny and so on. It's very difficult to say. I think a lot of the commentary about the Muslim Brotherhood is from people who don't like the Brotherhood to begin with and assume the worst. That said, Brotherhood is very much like the army. It's a top-down, masculine-dominated, secretive, conservative, patriarchal organization. The one difference with the army is it actually does need to relate to the public and respond to the public. And so if it feels that the public is behind it or is upset with its position, it also has to take that into account in a way that the army doesn't have to. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not convinced by what I've heard about sort of the conspiracy theory, the latest version of which has the Muslim Brotherhood and the army with the blessing of the Americans cutting deals. Um, I may be wrong. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible. I, I expected some sort of conservative convergence <coughs> between the army and the Brotherhood in the early months. But we've moved on since then. And I'm not sure this can happen anymore, or will happen. But as, I, as I've argued, unless the Brotherhood form a strong alliance with at least one or two other main political parties in Parliament, and the Americans don't undermine them, then they have a chance to standing up to them. Uh, there was the, the, the question somewhere about uh, the Salafis and um, voting, and, and, and uh, you, I think, asked it about uh, election fraud. I don't think there was massive fraud. I mean, that seems to be the case. Uh, uh, but the Salafis have made a point many times over the past year of really emphasizing just how much they're <coughs> on the army's side and that we won't question anything the army does, and the army's a big question, and so on, far more than the Brotherhood. And so the army might have been reciprocating. Some people suggest that there are more Salafis inside the army than we understand or know. I don't think that's likely above a certain rank. Um, there's probably more I could say, but I 
don't really have the time to, to speculate on it. Um, the, uh, on the Syrian army, finally, um, the Syrian army's cohesion goes to... <coughs> cohesion really is just that it's been uh, subordinate to authoritarian power for a long time. Um, has been you know, commissared by political officers from the Ba'ath Party, has been backed by all manners of um, patronage systems, including the freedom for at least the officer corps to get involved in all sorts of, all sorts of illegal economic activities, cross-border smuggling, and so on over many years. Um, then you have the sort of uh, sectarian aspect of this. And you know, we tend to think of the army simply as a matter of Alawi versus Sunni Muslim competition and domination. But the, the Assad regime has relied for many years on Sunni officers to maintain army cohesion and loyalty. All along, in fact, uh, co-opted people into the system. Sometimes some defect, like Khaddam, suddenly became an anti-regime person. Um, but part of that is also understanding intra-Sunni politics. We tend to simplify everything as Sunni. Well, historically, there's been a shift from the regime's reliance on northern Sunnis, Sunnis from northern Syria, to reliance on Sunnis from southern Syria, Huran and Daraa, where this, this revolt started, as opposed to Halab, Aleppo, and Hamza, and so on. I mean, this is fascinating from a sociological perspective, but it also means that there's been a playing off of different Sunni factions within the country that has always happened in Syrian politics since independence if not before. Um, so I think that also is a, is a, is a part of the world's picture. I'm just flagging that. Um, and I think that where external pressure <coughs> come in, well, bottom line, my simplest response to that is, so long as there is no external military intervention, I think that a great many officers and soldiers in the Syrian army will not defect. Because where will they go? I mean, you can absorb so many hundred, maybe a couple of thousand, or whatever number it is, inside Hamsa's, the inner neighborhoods of Hamsa, let's say, or in the hills around the Jordanian border or on the Turkish border. But where do you hide 20,000 or 50,000 troops, especially if they've got they've taken their armor or artillery with them? And if they don't take it with them, they're defenseless. Because without a no-fly zone, without safe havens, or any form of external military intervention, you don't have that tipping point where large numbers of uh, army units understand that it's safe for them to cross the line. And I'm absolutely convinced that there will be no external military intervention in Syria. I don't see the US doing this, not NATO doing this, not Turkey doing this, and no Arab country doing this. So where is the army going to break away from? This isn't to say that the regime can survive forever and that the defections might not eventually reach a tipping point or other factors may trigger a cascade of defections. I think that could come down the line. When it happens, I think it'll be rapid. But I think that we won't therefore get civil war in the classical sense of the word for the simple reason that the opposition will be unable, I think, for, 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 for a long while to field concentrated, organized military force against the government. This is, I think, a logistical, geographical, physical uh, impossibility at the, at the moment. And you know, having said that, events may well prove me wrong <laughs> next Monday. Yeah. And, um, well, that's a, 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 a suitably modest um, note to answer, to end on. I, I think um, the fact that the audience has been wrapped in the pen drop for the last hour and a half, I think it's, it's indicative of the breadth and the depth of uh, the talk we've just been lucky enough to witness, and also indicative of the uh, 
time over many years invested in this project that uh, you did you could respond to events that have been moving rapidly for 12 months and do it uh, with, with such authority. So it just leaves me to say one last thing that uh, Carnegie uh, Middle East's uh, gain has been King's London and, and our own loss. So uh, we, we thank you and wish them to come back as soon as you can.